restaurant business is tough. You know, it really is. And and I think that one of the things that you find in when a company goes public is everyone wants you to, you know, beat those earnings from last year. And so people start looking for ways to, you know, how do we do that? How do we attract customers that we don't currently have? The problem is when you start doing that, you start eroding who you are and you start losing some of that authenticity. And then over time, you end up with a concept that no one really recognizes. I turned 50, y'all, and I started a podcast. Really, age is just a number. It comes down to how we choose to live and the choices we make in our life and those things accumulate. Don't let the programming of life keep you from doing things every single day that, that make you happy. When we feel good, it's easy to think good. Life is not happening to you. You are your life. You are happening to your life. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I talked to Dan Ward. Dan Ward is a friend. He's a former next door neighbor. He's my current real estate agent. And um, in this episode, we talk about the love of food. And as you know, food is one of life's most pleasurable activities. And we talk about the differences between eating for sustenance and eating for pleasure and what it's like to um, dine in a restaurant that's really got their game dialed in, um, what it means to be a good patron of a restaurant, and um, just a little bit of Dan's story as well. I hope you enjoy this episode with Dan Ward. And remember, make today a good day to die. You know, the philosophy of how we can take a little bit of each day or a lot of each day, depending on the day, and really, you know, savor it, appreciate it, and at least take one part of every day and say, okay, I, I did something today that if today was my last day, I remembered this moment, you know, this meal, this person, yeah. this. So, and when, when we were having dinner at your house, you're in Brittany's house, um, last weekend and you were, we were talking about food we were talking about restaurants. Every time I'm around you, I'm reminded about your love for food and your, um, enjoyment of cooking it, eating it, sharing it. Um, and it's really one of life's you know, as humans, it's like one of those basic, most human necessary things that we do eat, but it yeah. can be one of the things that is the most pleasurable. And so right. it just really inspired me um, when we were talking last weekend and I wanted to, I don't know who else would be the, a better person to talk to about that subject. So that's, that's why we're here. Well, cool. I know. So, um, I know that you used to be in the, in the restaurant industry. I'd like to kind of just, if you wouldn't mind, share with me your, your story. Um, yeah. like how'd you get to food and then, and then we'll find out how you got out of food, but. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. You know, I think everyone at some point probably works in the restaurant business at some phase in their life. Um, it was my first job, uh, in high school it was the first job that I actually had busing tables. But I think what got me started on food was my my grandpa. He owned he owned a restaurant. It was a diner up in Portland, Oregon, and he was the cook in the kitchen. And my grandma, she was the waitress. And they had this ongoing joke that you know he never told her how to take care of customers, and she never told him how to uh, cook the food in the kitchen. And they got along great. 
but they had that for a long time and they actually he bought it from my my great grandfather and it was called Forbes Cafe and it was this little diner in downtown Portland and it was there for about 40 years wow and um it was a pretty cool spot it was a local hangout and i remember going there as a kid and going back and making milkshakes and as a matter of fact i still have the cash register um that they used in the restaurant as like my piggy bank as a kid, but I still have it today. Where is it? And it's in our, uh, it's in, it's in our office and it sits there. And it, I think the most expensive thing you can ring in is two ninety nine. Oh, not crazy. So, so your, your great grandfather and your grandfather had it We're both in the restaurant business. Yeah. And did you work in that restaurant or did you just go and enjoy working or eating there? No, I mean, I was only, I think my last memory of being in that restaurant was probably when I was like five years old. Okay. So, you know, then they retired and they sold it and now it's something else. But yeah, that's, that was the first time. And, you know, we still have, they had this gigantic waffle maker that we still have, um, which is like a commercial style waffle maker. And whenever we go home and get together with my parents, for holidays or uh, whatnot, they always make waffles. So it's like a thing. With that waffle maker? With that waffle maker, yeah. And the thing weighs about 75 pounds. It's huge. They keep it in the garage, but it's uh, it's it's cool. It's nostalgic. It makes me uh, remember my childhood for sure. Right. But that that's food, right? You know, it, it brings back memories. Right. Absolutely. So what was next? So that closed when you were young. And then and then what was your next experience? Your first job was a busser in a restaurant? Yeah. So that planted the seed, right? Um, I always kind of thought about food and restaurants and growing up in a small town in Oregon, there really weren't that many restaurants. So you did a lot of cooking at home. And so that's what we did. My parents cooked. I, I liked to cook at a young age, kind of got into that, worked in the restaurant business. Um, and then ultimately going to college, I mean, most kids in college work in some form of hospitality, right? Mm -hmm. Making tips, you know, either waiting tables, bartending. And so that's what I did. And that led me to uh, you know, going to college, obviously, and then um, getting my degree in hotel and restaurant management, and then working uh, in that business uh, directly out of college. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, wait. So where was back up? So where, when you were yeah. in, first of all, where did you go to college? Okay, so I, I went to NAU. So they have a hotel and restaurant management program. Actually, it's through Scottsdale Community College. But you can get your degree from NAU. So you can take all your one and 200 level classes at SCC. Uh -huh. And then you actually get your bachelor's degree from NAU. And that's what I did. It was a, it was a, it was a satellite program. So the whole time you got to stay in Scottsdale? It, yes, correct. That is yeah. really cool. It was cool. I mean, because I had started out at ASU. That was my first round. And then I kind of, you know, life happens and you start to figure out what you want to do when you grow up. And I really had decided while I was in college working in the restaurant business that I think I want to make this a career. And I had a friend that was going to do with that program. So that led me to that. And then one thing led to another and then that was it. So I did the program. I didn't have to move up to Flagstaff, which was awesome because living here in, in, in Scottsdale, you're able to work in some of the best restaurants, hotels in the country. We have all that right here. And up in Flagstaff, you're pretty limited. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So so I worked at the Princess while I was in college, uh, waiting tables there. And then uh, that led me to really wanting to, as I was getting closer to graduation, wanting to find some sort of a startup restaurant concept that I could go to work for. 
and then learn and then hopefully grow with it. And that's what led me to work at a local startup company called Kona Grill. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what it was. So wait, how did you know or what gave you the idea that you wanted to specifically work for a startup restaurant? I mean, what, what put that idea in your head? I think it was just, you know, being young, being ambitious, you know, wanting to uh, be part of some kind of growth. I, I wanted to be part of something that had, you know, that was going to be, could go beyond like the four walls of a restaurant uh-huh. where you could, you know, have other opportunities. Cause once the, once you start opening up more restaurants, then there's a lot more opportunity um, for positions and growth. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'd wanted at the time. That's really interesting though. I mean, I would just think for, for people who are graduating from that program, I, I would think that most people are like, where can they, where can they go get any kind of amazing job in a restaurant? And then, but I think it's interesting that you specifically were targeting um, a startup. And then how do you, how do you research companies that are doing that? How did you find that opportunity? Honestly, I got lucky. You know, I went to work for, I think, I think most restaurants, if you talk to most restaurateurs, very few will say, I only want one or I only want two. Everyone has aspirations of, you know, having a restaurant, having to be successful, seeing it grow and, you know, possibly multiplying that and, and, and making it big. I think at least that's how, that, that's how I was. And so I was looking for something that, um, wasn't just going to work for an already established big company and wanted to be part of something that was new, young, fresh, agile. That's what I wanted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I kind of, and, and of course I got lucky and, and I found it. How? Because a lot of, well, I mean, how did I find it? I, I found it by chance, really. Mm-hmm. It was actually, uh, fi- it was, was, at the time, it was another concept that was called Sushi on Mill. Okay. And it was the same owners, but they opened up a concept called Sushi on Mill. I was living in Tempe at the time. And it was going to be a new hot restaurant that was opening up uh, right on Mill Avenue. And so I went to work for that concept and then um, just as a waiter in college. And then I was the Sunday closing manager while I was finishing school. And then after I ended up graduating, I got a full-time management position with them. And they had aspirations of growing. And I liked that. They were a big restaurant family from Minnesota. And it was exciting. It was um, something that I could I could feel some energy. I could tell that they had ambition, and we got along well. And it seemed like a good fit. Mm-hmm. But being part of that concept, being part of a restaurant that is trying to figure out who they are, you know, what's their hook going to be? What's going to make them different? You know, is it something that can travel? Does it resonate with somebody in Arizona and somebody in Omaha, Nebraska? That's that, that that that's not easy thing to do, but Arizona is a great test market for restaurants because it's such a melting pot of people from all over the country. Right. If you can make it in Arizona, chances are you can travel. That's go ahead. That's really really cool. Yeah. So then we ended up. Um, so I I got to be a part of that on a management level, kind of tweaking the concept. You know, communicating back and forth what's working, what's not working, and probably before we were really ready to open up the next location. We went ahead and did it. And that was when we opened up uh, the Fashion Square Mall location, which was the first location for Kona Grill. Really? Yeah. God. So that was, that was, and this was going back to, this is 1998 uh, when that opened. 
And when we opened, it was, it wasn't going well. It was a mess. You know, we were, it was right when, if you remember a concept called Roy's. Yes. Now they're owned by Outback Steakhouse, but you know, it was a Roy Yamaguchi. He opened up this restaurant in Hawaii and he started expanding it, brought a location to Scottsdale and it was the hottest restaurant in town. Where, where was that? And it was on Indian Bend and Scottsdale Road. Okay. So do you know where Roca Accord is yeah. right now? Okay. So it's just south of that in that shopping mall. Okay. So we ended up opening up Kona. And if you've been there, you know that the upstairs right now um, is a bar. It's an indoor-outdoor bar with a patio. But at the time, it was a private dining room. And then downstairs, there was, um, it was more fine dining. We had tablecloths. We served a rack of lamb on the menu. And we're in a mall. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of the restaurant business is trial and error. You know, you're kind of figuring out what's working, what's not working. Because a lot of times, what you think is going to work doesn't work. We ended up getting rid of the sushi bar completely because we thought it was going to be too hard to execute. And uh, the concept was just flailing. So one thing led to another. We went through a bunch of management. We went through a bunch of chefs. And then ultimately, based off of true necessity and just literally losing money every month, we we're like, okay, we need to go back to what we know that works. So let's get rid of the private dining room upstairs. We're going to put in a bar. Yeah. We're going to, have to add, we're going to add a happy hour. We're going to you know, tweak the concept, make it more approachable. We're not going to be fine dining. We're going to be an American grill with a sushi bar. Interesting. And we did it and it just took off. Really? We, yeah, it, it did. And uh, so going into like going back and then I became the general manager of that location. Um, I believe it was in 2000, 2000 or 2001, right around that time. So about two years after it opened at that point, we kind of figured, we really had figured out who we were mm-hmm. and who we were going to be. Mm-hmm. And then the concept just started like cranking mm-hmm. and keep in mind we were right next door to the original P.F. Chang's at the time. In the mall? In the mall. That's... I don't know. Did you know that? No. Yeah. But I'm so, is, that, is that a strategy, like to put yourself next to what might be construed as your competition? I mean, they were our competition in the sense that they were in the same, not the same type of cuisine, but they were, this, they were a similar price point. You know, they were upscale casual is what we called it. And they were high volume. We were going after the same customer. But it's also and, Asian uh, Asian food, Asian inspired or? It is. I mean, at the time they were, you know, Chang's was specifically Chinese. Yeah. You know, and we were an American girl with a sushi bar. So yeah, there were some you know, oh. Asian elements, but they really were really different. We didn't have any competing menu items. I see. Um, I you know, see. It was very different. See, when I think of Kona Grill, I think of an Asian steakhouse. Okay. Is that not what it is at all? <laughs> well, okay, keep in mind it's changed. I, I I haven't been there for 15 years. I haven't uh, worked, worked there. there for 15 years. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely it was definitely a American Ameri- Grill. Was, yeah, think of more like a Houston's with a sushi bar. But Kona. Yeah. Kona is what is that? That's an island in Hawaii. Did you guys did you guys have um, a branding company do the branding, or did you guys do it yourself? There were a couple of different branding companies that came and went, but for the most part, it was just us 
that didn't really know what we were doing, to be honest with you, and uh, kind of figuring it out as we went. Wow. And it was a name that was chosen in the beginning to kind of, we kind of deviated away from what it was met with the menu, but we never obviously changed the name, but it just kind of became more of synonymous with just, you know, it's, it's an American grill. It's got some Asian influence and a sushi bar and a sushi bar. But it was, it was the place where people could come to, you know, there's always one person in the group that says, I don't eat fish or I don't like seafood or I don't eat sushi. And, you know, because of that, when you're thinking about going out to dinner with a group of like five or six people, they might be the deciding factor in saying, you know what, we're not going to go to a sushi bar because one person doesn't eat sushi. So we were your alternative. We were the place you could go if the one person wanted sushi or if one person didn't want sushi, Mm -hmm. we were your, we were your go-to. It's really, really, really interesting. And so then, and then, so while you worked there, how many, um, total locations were there when at their height while you were still working for them? So when I worked there, I was there up until 2007. The company went public in 2005. Public. And yeah, yeah. They were, they had big aspirations. They wanted to raise money. That was an inexpensive way to do it. Um, but, you know, our first, our second location was the Chandler Mall down there. That way we had a good success in malls. And then the next location was Kansas City, Missouri. And that was done strategically to test can we travel? Can we take this concept to the heart of the Midwest? And is it going to fly? And what we found is it did. You know, it really, it really resonated. And Kona was a great concept to go to um, that kind of a market, which I would say is like a B plus market. Whereas if you think about like Newport Beach, Beverly Hills, right. Las Vegas, those are all A plus markets. Right. Um, very competitive, very expensive. You put a lot on the line, a lot of risk going there. Mm-hmm. Hard to find employees, that sort of thing. But going to, you know, Kansas City, Missouri, and then Omaha, Nebraska, and you know, Carmel, Indiana, all those locations that we chose, they were, they killed it. Really? So that was your, you found your lane, which was those B plus locations. I'm wondering too, if you go to places like in the Midwest and you have a Kona grill, which is an American grill that people can totally resonate with, but you also have the sushi bar. So it allows people to branch over into sushi, um, you know, in a kind of a more trusted environment. Because it's a- yeah, like have have like have you been have have you been to Omaha? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, okay. So um, before we were in Omaha, for the most part, people that have exposure to sushi in Omaha were that was in the grocery store. Wow. I mean, that was right. Other than maybe some mom and pop, right? Might be it's, not very clean, right? That you're not you're afraid to go to. You're not you know unless you're like a, yeah. So it works, right? You were bringing it into, it's like bringing a PF Chang somewhere. They're going to, you know, they're going to trust it because it's like a brand. Yeah. It's a brand. It's something that's different. It's something that, you know, you're delivering, um, you know, you're delivering an experience from, for somebody living in Omaha, maybe in the middle of winter, they can't wait for their next vacation. Right. So they can go, you know, eat and try something new and right. experience something different, but you're bringing it to them. That's amazing. So, so they expanded into a bunch of other markets. So how many, um, how many locations were you up to? We had, when I left, we had 17 locations. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, so, and I oversaw operations for them. So it was a big job. 
was traveling a ton. And in the restaurant business, I mean, let's face it, something's going, something is always going wrong yeah, somewhere yeah. in the restaurant business. So were you hooked up at this point or at some point did you guys hook up with a franchise development company? No, we wanted to do it all in-house. So we were expanding our corporate structure to meet the needs of the restaurants. We had a, our corporate office was based, what well, was right on Camelback and Scottsdale Road. And um, all of our operations were run out of this, this, this market. I'm surprised when you partnered and, or, or when you got, I, I don't know, so you didn't get venture capital money, you took it public to get that kind of money. Is that right? In the, be in the, in the beginning, it was venture capital money. And then one, one of the venture capital guys that we, that was our main guy, ended up taking it public through. Got you. Yeah. So I'm surprised that when you hooked up with the venture capital people, they didn't um, require you to at least um, have a consulting franchise uh, consultancy. That you, you, that you, they really must have trusted your guys' management team. Well, you know, we didn't open up a second location until our original location was killing it. Uh -huh. You know, that the concept was really tweaked and fine-tuned. By the time we started opening stores, there really wasn't that much change happening in terms of the menu. You had, you the, had, the, you had worked out concept. all the bugs. You had worked out all the bugs. You, you, you spent all that time just really getting your brand totally solid before you opened up number two. We did, yeah. So, I mean, if I think back on it, I mean, you know, we were... You know, we were under five, under 6,000 square feet. And this is going back, keep in mind, so 2000. So we're talking 22 years ago. You know, we were 5,800 square feet, I believe. Um, we were doing $6 million a year in sales. The restaurant selling, you know, $2 Bud Lights during happy hour and $2.50 California rolls. And that score footage, that kind of volume is intense. You're busy all the time. You're on a wait during every meal period, seven days a week. What, what was your profit margin on that? It was, we cash flowed probably, it was right around, on average, it would be like 25%. On a really good month, we might brush 30% cash flow. Like, so, that's before, so, is that before debt service? That's, well, I mean... That was in the restaurant, right? So obviously the corporate office had GNA expenses that, you know, they they fed to. But in terms but of the, the actual the, restaurant. 25, 30%. That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. It's 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 incredible. Um, so when you had 17 locations, what year was that? That would have been 2007. So and what happened? They ended up good. Yeah. So they, they, they can, after I left, they continued to expand and, um, you know, I, I, I followed it for quite a while and then kind of, you know, paid a little less attention to it over time, but they ended up getting up to, I believe it was like 42 locations. And you, um, you left in 2007? Some, yeah. They did some additional capital raises, whatnot. And then, um, you know, in 2000, I think it was, I think it was 2000. 19, they ended up going bankrupt or filing for bankruptcy. They had completely over leveraged. They had taken on an international partner trying to do some stores overseas. Um, you know, they operationally started really struggling with some of the locations that they had opened. Um, restaurant business is tough. I know. You know it really is. I know. And, and I think that one of the things that you find in 
when a company goes public is everyone wants you to, you know, beat those yep. earnings from last year. And so people start looking for ways to, you know, how do we do that? How do we attract customers that we don't currently have? Well, maybe now we start adding menu items that to fill holes to think, well, if we did this, maybe we could attract more business. The problem is when you start doing that, you start eroding who you are yeah. and you start losing some of that authenticity. And then over time, you end up with a concept that no one really recognizes yeah. and doesn't have the same feel um, that it had when it initially became successful. Yeah. It's so interesting. Um, you know, you just talking about all the different dynamics and, and um, challenges, you know, in a restaurant business. I mean, there are some obviously unique challenges to the restaurant industry, um, but business in general, I mean, just the idea of what happens when you go public and then, then the kind of pressure on the investors or the shareholders, um, they're looking at the bottom line and the dividends and the pressure to perform, um, you know, it's, it, it can make you, it can make you make decisions that you wouldn't have normally made. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, there's, there's pressure to open locations that maybe you shouldn't have opened. Right. You know, there's there's pressure to grow when maybe you shouldn't grow. So there's a lot of competing forces out there. Did you see, um, just as a side note, did you see uh, we, we crashed on, was it Netflix that was on recently about the founder of WeWork? The guy who oh, yeah. start, did you watch that? Um, I haven't seen that one yet. No. Yeah. But I, I did watch bad vegan though. <laughs> we're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of it. Okay. Yeah, we're in the middle of it. But, um, I was just thinking and the, the, he would, you know, in the, we work, he was in the commercial real estate or the, um, not commercial real estate in the, um, what do you call it? The, the shared office space, uh, shared right? shared office space, yeah, and yes. um, and every time he got more money, he knew he had to he knew what the return on investment that his investor required, and so they started making all of these decisions, um, getting new space, leasing new space, you know, signing new contracts, you know, with really horrible terms in order to satisfy um, the, the ROI that they were working towards. But, um, I think the restaurant business has so many additional unique challenges. Um, you know, I also spent a lot of time in restaurants, um, from, from college and, um, into my late twenties. Um, and, and my uncle, uh, was in the restaurant business for years as a operations manager. Uh, and then a regional manager for the Hungry Hunter uh, chain that is really no longer. But um, and then he brought um, the uh, famous Dave's franchise to Reno, and and well, he actually we opened a famous Dave's in Reno, in Chico, and in in um, there one other Northern California city. But um, you know, ten years later, only one of those restaurants is alive and well. So out of three, two of them, two of them are now closed, you know, and that's a, that's a well-established franchise. Like, uh, famous Dave's is a very high likelihood of success. If you, you know, if you set it up correctly and you, you know, you do a good thing, but I, I always admire and I'm shocked 
at anybody who number one goes into business or number two, who wants to go into the restaurant business? Because it's like, you've got food spoilage. You've got mm. probably every employee sucking some kind of food or drink off of you every single day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You have a ton of theft, right? You have turnover. Oh, turnover. You have all those things that make it really tough. But you know what? When it's good, is it good? it's so good. It's good. It's really good. So like let's when you're, when you're, yeah. What were you going to say? Go ahead and finish what you're going to say. I, I was going to say, you know, when you're for all that, right? When it's a Friday night and it's, you know, 730, like prime dining hour, and you're on an hour and a half, two hour wait, and you're fully staffed. Everybody showed up that day, right? And you've got a good, good front of house staff. You've got a great back of house staff and, and you're, you're flowing, you know, the kitchen's putting out food. Uh, ticket times are where they should be. Food quality is coming out of the kitchen and it looks beautiful. Customers are happy. They're getting great service. Um, the restaurant's full and there's that energy. Yeah. It's really hard to replicate that. It's fun. In any other, anything else. It's just fun. And to see that all happening and seeing that machine work yeah. is pretty cool. It is like when all of those elements are there, it is like this symphony that's happening. Whenever, when really if people are in sync and they're, and they're, and they're enjoying what they do. And yeah, I mean, I, I when I was thinking about this talk today that we were going to have, you know, I think one of the things I was thinking about was when you were at, when you had mentioned that, you know, what, are the, what, what's one of the things I loved about the restaurant business and what made it something I wanted to pursue as a career. And I think about it, it's like, where else can you go? Where else do we go? where we get to experience all of our five senses at once. You know, it's taste, it's touch, it's smell, it's sound, it's what you see. It's all these components. You know, what else, what other businesses provide that kind of experience where you're literally giving everybody all those things? And which is why I think people have such, you know, intense reactions um, to either liking or disliking what they experience when they go out because yes. you're literally hitting them on every level. Yes. And it's something and I'll speak for myself. Cause I know I absolutely love, love to go out to dinner. Like I love to go out to dinner and I'm so happy to be living in this city where we have endless, you know, supply of amazing restaurants. But, um, I count it as like one of my prime enjoyments of life. Like it is the highlight of my day if I'm going to be going out to dinner. And so I am, I am very sensitive to, um, the, the experience. Right. And, and, it, and, and you're right. Sometimes if it's too loud and you can't talk or if it's too quiet and you hear things in the kitchen or, you know, if there's it's too cold, you know, yeah. What's that air conditioning coming down on me or yeah. whatever. Um, or, uh, uh, I mean, there's so many different things, but it can, it can, if, if, if something is off on the balance, it just, it can throw the whole experience off. And, um, absolutely. Yeah. Like, have you ever, have you ever walked into a restaurant and gone, like, I love sitting in the bar when I, when I go out, but going into a bar and uh, sitting at the bar and you get that kind of funky bar smell, Yes. you know, and, 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 and I have such a hard time with that having been in the restaurant business. Um, because you know what it's from. No, tell right? me. Tell me. Let's get into you it. Know, it's probably coming from a drain, right? Um, that probably hasn't been cleaned. 
you know, you, when you think about what's going down the drains in a restaurant, there's a lot of grease, right? There's a lot of um, syrupy, sticky, sugary type substances. You know, it's a can be, and you think behind a bar, a lot of what they're serving can attract fruit flies, things like that. And so you really have to stay on top of cleanliness in a bar. But if you get that bar stench is what I call it, um, you can pretty much guarantee that somebody's not doing what they should be doing behind there in terms of cleanliness. You know, and, and that's all I can think about when I'm sitting there, uh, if if that if you, if, if you smell something like that. Right, right. So, right, it, it can the 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 scent of of anything, or even just um, last night we did go to PF Chang's, by the way. <laughs> and I I used to enjoy that restaurant for whatever it's worth, but the 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 location at um, you know, at the Fashion Square. It's it, it felt like a cafeteria. I felt like I was at a cafeteria last night. I mean, you walk in and there's empty tables that people have left and there's just food on the floor underneath the tables. And like, I, I mean, I know that everybody's having staffing issues too. So they probably are not the fullest, most complete staff to where they can have all of the jobs being handled all the time. But um, yeah, it was it was really, really interesting. So Let's see, what do we want to talk about? So talk a little bit more about um, the art of the restaurant. And and um, I think you're hitting on one of the, the, the aspects of the art, which is hitting all of those five sen sen uh, senses and, and having them all work together with the team and everything like this. But what are some other specific things that you think restaurateurs um, and, you know, what is, what is there that creates that magic or that spark or that, or that hit? I know you love Houston's you, you use as, as an example, um, for different things, but can you give me some examples of when restaurants hit something really right and it's really good? It's a good question. You know, and I think it's changed a little bit over time. I mean, think back, remember back in the, say, like, I would say, early late eighties, early nineties, when it was all about the theme restaurant. Yeah. And you saw all the you know themed restaurants come about and it was, you know, the Rainforest Cafe. I was thinking know, the Rainforest place. Cafe. Yeah. You know, people wanting to provide people some sort of a adventure in dining that was different. Their food was never really that exciting, but the atmosphere was just really like amped up. Places like that. I think what's 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 changed now is that you know people have gotten away in a chain which was what we were aspiring to be is almost now looked a little upon negatively to the consumer you know the consumer today wants an authentic experience they want to take me you know how many times have you said when you're in a town that you've maybe never been to before take me someplace that i can't or take me to someplace i can't get back where i'm from yeah you know, take me to someplace different that's what people want, I think. Yeah. So restaurants have kind of have to had to figure out how do they go about connecting with today's consumer who wants an authentic experience. And if you are going to be a chain restaurant, how are you going to provide unique experiences in a chain environment and make it good enough to where people want to come back again and again and again? And it, it's tough. It is tough. Do you think? Do you think it's impossible, or like? What about just the, the individual location chef owned restaurant? Like, 
is it possible to make a living off of that? And, and do you think that those are making a comeback or is it always, I want to have two locations, three locations. I want to take this. I mean, you know, I think the hard part is, is it's difficult in most cases to make a living off of a single restaurant. Really? And not to, in some cases, and beyond that, you know, you think about the purchasing power of a single restaurant, you know, you pay more for everything. Uh, you know, it's a economy of scale, right? You know, the, the price you pay for, you know, your food, your alcohol, all those dictate that are all dictated based on how much you're purchasing. Right. So, you know, if you have, and there is a sweet spot, you know, if you can open up a few restaurants in a single market and leverage some of that buying power, you can save significant dollars to take mm -hmm. those to the bottom line. Plus, you think about your staffing, you know, you got to have career paths for people, right? You got to be able to show people, hey, if you come in and you work hard, one day you too can get to this level. And if you have a single unit, that's a difficult thing to provide for people. You know, you're stuck with looking for kind of that, having that transitory worker that comes in. Maybe you get a year out of them. Maybe you get two or three or four if you're lucky. But at the end of the day, where are they going to go? And unless they want to be a server for the rest of their life. Yeah. Well, so there, there's a sweet spot there. Yeah. And don't you, do you think though, in different cultures besides the United States that maybe like, I wish being a server or being a, a restaurant manager or being a bartender, I feel like it could and should be to be able to be a career. Like there is an art and a, there is an art to, 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 to those positions, specifically um, restaurant servers and bartenders. I mean, I feel like it should be in and of itself enough. There should be enough reward financially and emotionally and, you know, all of it. But, and I wonder in other cultures, is it more possible to make, you know, a living and to support a family or, you know, Well, and I do think there are probably restaurants, not a lot of them, but there are some in the United States where that, that, that is the case. Um, you know, I think that so much of it has to do with the restaurant manager. And I think that gets overlooked in a lot of cases. Cause you think about, you know, the manager has, I mean, how many times have you called the restaurant and you have a, and your first interaction is with a host or a hostess and it maybe isn't pleasant or they're really underqualified to be answering the phone and answering questions about anything. And, you know, maybe it's a matter of, Hey, I want to make a reservation at this time. And the answer is, sorry, we're full. There's no, well, hey, what about this? Or, you know, how do we take that interaction and actually turn it into something positive as opposed to just sorry? Right. And there's, I think there's a, and that all comes from the, you know, inner management within that restaurant mm -hmm. who may or may not be well paid, who may or may, may or may, who probably has varying degrees of talent. You know, how pumped up are they getting the servers and the staff for a pre-shift meeting, Right. Are they excited about going out there and selling and providing great service? Are they putting all their aces in their places and making sure they've got the right people in the right locations? Um, are they fully staffed for the day? Yeah. You know, what kind of service experiences are they going to provide to people? I mean, there's so many things um, that that lead to it. Like we were talking about the experience at Will Chang's where you know, there's dirty tables and no one's paying attention. And I, that is a common story in today's restaurant world. And it's sad, mm -hmm. but it's very, I think it's, I think it's all over the place. So speaking of hostesses, I will tell you and calling 
I called yesterday to two restaurants because I, as you know, I was looking for a place to take my dad. And after you and I had talked about Houston's, well, I mean, we've talked about it multiple times. I still have not gone yeah. to that damn restaurant. I'm going to make it up. You got to check it out. I'm going to make a reservation this week. I'm going to take my dad and Garrick and um, my dad's friends coming into town. Anyway, I'm going to take them to Houston's. But I called Houston's yesterday and I said, um, you know, it was 630 at night. And I said uh, on a Saturday and I said, you know, how long is the wait for two people? And she said, right now, the wait is about an hour. She said, but you're welcome to come in and, and put your name in and, um, you know, we'll get you in as soon as possible, which I thought was cool that she didn't just say it's about an hour. You know, she, she gave me an option. Why don't you come in? Sure. You know, that was cool. Um, then I called PF Chang's after you recommended, cause my dad wanted Chinese food. So I called PF Chang's and I said, how long is the wait for two people? And she goes, first of all, she said, Hey, how's it going? Like after I, you know, she like first, she just had a nice human communication with me. Oh, I said, Oh, I'm doing good. Thanks. She goes right now. It's probably about 15 minutes, but, um, I can put your name down right now and then you can just come and we'll get you seated. I'm like, yes. Done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I love that because, and, and, and I mean, they had, they were on their hostess game. Let me just tell you at PF Chang's last night, because then when I walked in another girl, she's like, Oh, hi. Yeah. Hi, Joanna. Yep. I got your name right here. You know, we're going to be right with you. And then the other hostess walked up when she was seating us and she gave me a, a like a compliment and just was really friendly. I'm like, Ooh, they got their hostess game. And the, but, um, yeah, it's not always like that. It's not always like that, definitely. But what I was getting at, what I was thinking of when you were saying that about how important the middle management is and how they staff and how they train and like the philosophy, I always go back to this idea. I mean, I've never necessarily, when I worked in restaurants, I loved it. Like I thought it was so much fun when I was a hostess, when I was a waitress, when I was a bartender. Like I loved physically doing those activities. So, uh, it was a fun job for me. And, um, you know, and so I was happy and I wanted to do good, but I have found generally as a business owner, um, that if you want to encourage like an ownership mentality, because really what that is, it, it is, it's an ownership mentality. It's like, let's all get to our stations. Let's all get to our, our most skilled stations. We're going to put people where they're, they're most suited. We're going to all get to our stations and our goal, like our, we're going to have an overarching goal of making sure every person that, that, that interacts with this restaurant tonight is satisfied, gets what they want, leaves happy, you know, that we got to have this overarching goal. It can't be my job is to take this order and submit it to the kitchen. Like it can't be that there's got to be this overarching, we are part of this whole organism that's working together to create an overarching goal. And my point that I'm getting to is, is in, in different businesses that I've owned, I feel like one of the only ways to get to that ownership mentality is to do some kind of revenue sharing or bonus profits, you know, bonuses on profit or, you know, so that people actually feel like they have an impact on the bottom line, you know, and then that's going to translate into, 
you know, their pay, you know, their paycheck. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's an interesting concept that there are some people that are trying to kind of try some different things in the restaurant business right now. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, a guy named Danny Meyer. He owns uh, Union Square Hospitality. He founded Shake Shack. Um, it has Gramercy Tavern in New York City. He's like a rock star restaurateur in New York. And, um, you know, his recent thing, he's been pretty well published on this, is that he doesn't accept tips at his restaurants. So everything is built in to the price. And then he pays his staff a considerable wage for whatever job it is they're doing. And it's widely known that this is just how they operate. Um, he wants to be able to, you know, pay, you know, $35, $40 for a line cook or you know, whatever he sees fit. And then that's just going to be reflected in a higher menu price. Wow. Which is interesting that people are starting to think about maybe a different way to approach the whole tipping. Um, but, you know, also I remember having, you know, having uh, talks with my staff, uh, a pre-shift meeting where they're getting people pumped up. And, you know, servers, I think... They're underappreciated, right? Yeah. And I think that it's a trans, it's typically a transitional time in someone's life, whether a server, maybe they're in school, maybe they dropped out of school, maybe they're trying to get back into school, maybe they are just, this is what they're going to be for right now, you know, whatever the situation. And then you, you go home for the holidays and you've got that aunt or uncle or brother or sister and, you know, hey, what are you doing? I'm waiting tables. And there's always that element of like, oh, somehow you're a little lower class because you work in the restaurant business, work in the restaurant business, or you're just a server, just a bartender. And I used to spend so much time talking to people, telling them, you're not just a, a server. You're not just a busser. You're not just a food runner or a bartender. You're a frontline salesperson for a multi-million dollar organization that went public and that is in multiple states across the U.S. That's what you're a part of. Wow. And that's what you should be going home feeling good about. Because the reality of it is, you're probably making between forty and $75,000 a year. And this is 20 years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, Wait, who's making... In a busy four, restaurant. Who's making between 40 and... Seven, a, a server. A server or a bartender. Yeah. Now, those are the highest paid positions typically in the restaurant. A lot of cases, those people are making more money than some of the entry-level managers. It's wow. not uncommon to you know take a pay cut as an right. entry-level manager. Right. I imagine you would be an amazing manager. You know what we had a I was really a confident operator. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that if I was in a restaurant, there's certain things that you could do to ensure that you're going to have a great night, which is going to mean higher sales. And right. I'm very competitive too in that sense. So you know we would track our sales. I, I used to like to go around to different restaurants and say, "Hey, you know what? What's the best you know day we've ever done? How can we maybe through some efficiencies, turning tables, just being you know good about how we even set up the dining room, you know, because it's a puzzle that you're putting together. You know, you've got this many people that want to come in. You've got this many seats available. How do we most efficiently use that space and maximize our sales? Mm -hmm. Because if you're on a 45 minute wait to an hour wait and you've got empty tables, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? for sure. Now, of course, there's a lot of different variables there. I mean, it could be the kitchen can't keep up right. and that's a whole other problem, right? right? Or it could be, um, could be a lot of things. Well, that's the thing. In a restaurant, you're you're spinning all these different things. I mean, 
you, yeah, I mean, you, you, you can't control, I mean, you got to be able to manage the kitchen with the servers because the kitchen can be putting food out, but if the servers aren't processing their tables or if the bar is not, I, I mean, I, I mean, even last night I was sitting next to this other table and I could see that the waiter walked up to the table and, and, and they said, oh yeah, and, and remember I ordered a, like a Moscow mule or something. And the server's like, yep, it's going to be right up at the bar. Well, like 10 minutes later, like uh, I saw him go finally bring this guy this mule. And I mean, if that was me, I would have been like, holy cow. Like, um, you know, that's one of my pet peeves um, for as a server, because I've been a server and also just knowing about business ownership and management. If you should never let somebody's glass get empty before you are offering to get them another one or no, or you've got to know how long your bar is taking. So if you know it's going to be an extra five minutes, ask them when it's halfway gone. I mean, you know, the last thing you want somebody to do is sit there waiting for a cocktail that they're paying, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12, 15 dollars for, you know, and then they're just, totally. then they're just pissed. And so let me ask you this. Have you ever been... Have you ever been, do you, I mean, don't you think that your server and that attitude that they approach your table with and the care that they approach your table with, the knowledge of the menu that they have or don't have, their timeliness and friendliness can completely dictate how much you're willing to spend on any given night? Absolutely. And, and, and just my be, general enjoyment. Yeah. And it could be wildly different. Absolutely. Based on that one person in front of you. It could be, you know what? I, I, I get that this person um, isn't really, you know, feeling their job tonight and maybe for whatever reason is it's kind of projecting some, like when you go into a steakhouse and you ask, you know, Hey, what's your favorite steak on the menu? I don't eat meat. And that's ridiculous. The that's ridiculous. You know what I mean? That kind of a thing. So going that route or like when we went to ocean 44 that one night, you know, and you have a server that's engaging and fun and all of a sudden it's like espresso martinis for dessert, you know? And, well, maybe we wouldn't have done that if he hadn't right. suggested it. Right. But it's it's kind of you know they have such, they play such a role in that, and you think about what that means to the bottom line for yeah. the actual restaurant owner is monumental, and I think it's underappreciated. I do too. I really do too. And I, I, I always you know I'm always totally hyper aware of the service I get in a in a restaurant, and I. I, I, I'm, I'm working on being hyper aware and not hyper judgmental or critical. Um, you know, and I'm, I always, you know, I, I have empathy and I want to kind of like understand what's going on. And I, and I, and I'm really willing the person, it's like, I'm just willing you to, to embrace this position you have right now, just be in this moment and in this relationship with me right now, because I want you to do well. You know, like I want this to be good for you and good for me. You know, the best um, service I've had in a long time was uh, when I went with my aunt and uncle and Garrick to um, Maple and Ash a couple weeks mm -hmm. ago. And it felt like, it felt like being at your and Brittany's house. I felt like I was a guest at someone's house. I was a guest in their home and it was all about, it was just all about my experience and all about our experience at the table. It, it Were you celebrating or were you, was it just a night out? It was just my aunt and uncle were um, visiting Scottsdale and I thought take them to someplace special and, um, Cause that's a $200 per person meal. I mean, 
But um, and did that server? I'm guessing the server played a big role in your experience. Oh, it was it was he was amazing. Like at first we were we're like, is he the is he the waiter, or is he just yeah. like welcoming us into this room in the restaurant? Like we weren't even sure because he was so like. It was like, he, welcome to my home. I mean, he wasn't dramatic like that. Like this is this is my station, but this is my restaurant, yes. right? Like that's how it's that ownership of it your experience great. is on my shoulders, and I'm going to make sure it's awesome. And not one time, not one time, was I ever interrupted. Did I ever feel rushed? Did I ever wait on anything? So, I mean, that's really the art is don't interrupt me, don't rush me, and don't make me wait, right? I mean. Yeah. And that is an art, right? Because all those things can be conflicting at some times, right? You might have to wait if, I, if, if, if I'm not reading your timing correctly, and I might interrupt you if I am worried about getting your order into the kitchen fast enough to where it's not going to get bogged down. So, it is an art. It's an art. Maybe you should write a book on the art of, <laughs> of serving. You know, it's funny. I was looking at the title of your podcast, uh, A Good Day to Die. And it's funny. I think sometimes I have a hard time ordering in a restaurant because I want to order. I kind of have a tendency to order like it's always going to be my last meal. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to know what the best thing on the menu is from the server if I haven't been there before. I'm like, you know, give me like, you know, your top five things. I always say that. And um, I always hate it when people say, oh, everything's good. Well, I mean, there's always something that you do exceptional. So give me those five things in all the different categories, you know, from appetizer to dessert. And, and you know, usually you can kind of get, I think, a better experience by servers know what's good. Yeah. Right? They see what's coming out of the kitchen. They see what's getting sent back. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole good day to die, it's like, yeah, you know. Eat, it, eat like it's your last meal. <laughs> well, and, and, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's not only let's eat like the, the best thing on the menu and the thing that the chef wants to cook. So I also pay attention to specials, although I want to ask you about specials. But, but give, me, give me a second. We'll go back to that. But it's like if we're going to do this, if we're going to go through this exercise, we're going to go to a restaurant we're going to have to make reservations. We're going to get dressed. We're going to go there. We're going to sit there for an hour and a half. We're going to spend this money. You know, we're let's have something that we're really, really, really going to enjoy and savor. Um, you know, and if that means, you know, so then I, you know, think about, okay, if we did that four times a week, I mean, I probably go out four times a week. And if I did that four times a week, what that means is, is I'm going to gain 10 pounds in, in a year, <laughs> which is exactly what I've done. Um, but I've, I figured out what the answer is to that, which is order exactly what you want. Order it all, order whatever you want, and then just eat half of it. Just don't eat the whole thing. Yeah. You know what right. I mean? Like just eat a, a, a small. And then, and I know like you and Britt, when you're at home, you try to make really, really good choices. Right. Healthy, healthy, healthy. And then when you go out, you're like, I'm going all in. I'm going all in because this idea, there's two ways to eat. One is eating for fuel and eating for sustenance. And then there's eating for pleasure, right? I mean, I feel like food is like sex. It's like all humans have a desire and need for it. And, um, and, 
I don't know if we die without sex, but you know what I mean? It's, it's part of, of being human. It was a human need. Right. Food, similarly, obviously we have to have it, we'll die, but it can both, it can be so pleasurable. And it's like, you know, to, 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 to miss out on that aspect of our humanness, you know, at least, at least some of the time, you know, obviously we don't want to be gluttonous and like all the time, just like, but to savor those moments and to really appreciate, um, people who are trying to do it right. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that, about eating for sustenance and nutrition compared to eating for pleasure? And what is your philosophy about that in your own life? Yeah. I mean, for, <clears throat> for me, I mean, I, I like to eat. I really do. Um, but I also found, I think the older I get, certain foods make me feel better than others. Right. So then you make choices based off of some of that and you can really combine the two. You know, you can, I think find foods that taste delicious and then also are good for you. Um, I have a hard time, like I'm not a sweets guy, but I love a salty appetizer, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and all those things. But it's, uh, I, for me, I think it's because we like to go out a lot. I have to do what you were saying, which is make probably better choices than I would. Um, otherwise if I was going out for an occasion. Right. And so in, in your life, what would you say is you say you typically eat for pleasure or for sustenance or you have to do some of like when you're at home, like how do you? I think it's a combo. It's, you know, you're always kind of struggling to find that balance. There's certain times I'm better at it than others. Um, you know, I, I, right now kind of getting ready for the summer. We're like, you know, trying to be healthy, make better choices. But then, you know, when winter's here and it's, you know, it doesn't get light in the morning until eight o'clock. Yeah. Like, well, that's a little different, you know? Yeah, I know. I know. I was thinking. And the heat too. I feel like the, what, the temperature kind of dictates too, like different kinds of food I like to eat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been feeling lately, I've been really struggling with this weight gain, you know, and um, trying to figure out, <laughs> I've been trying to like, I want to blame it on 10 different things. And I keep circling back to, I'm putting more into my body than my body needs to operate. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it really is. <laughs> I mean, for all of us, right? It's just it, calories in, calories out. Yeah. That's what it is. I know. I know. So the other, the, what would you say as far as somebody who goes to a restaurant as a, as a customer so we've kind of already talked a little bit about what the server can do. What would you say as a customer? Because you've been a restaurant manager, uh, operator. What do what does the consumer need to know? What do they need to not do? What do they need to stop doing? Or what do they need to wake up and do? Let's. This is your public service announcement to mm -hmm. restaurant customers everywhere. <laughs> I, I think I would say the biggest thing is, and this is pretty elementary, but you know, what you project is what you're going to get in return yeah. in terms of just how you approach, I think any person. And I think if you, now that, that may not always be the case, but there's been times I know that we've gone into restaurants and I could tell our server was off, you know, and if you take a minute to just ask them about their day, because keep in mind, these people are, all they're doing is taking care of others all day long. And we've all 
you know, in different parts of our life probably play that role. But these guys do it as a job, you know, eight hours a day. So I think being human, communicating in a good way with your server can really kind of set the tone mm-hmm. for how your experience is going to go. Um, if you bring an attitude, I think, into any situation, I think you're going to get an attitude in return. Mm-hmm. So I think that. Um, and I also think that for the most part, when I think when most people dine, it's they're good. But I think that you know it, it is food, right? Although it's important, it's important to have an experience. Um, I don't think that it, it's not life and death. Right. It right. is just a meal. Right. And so people get all dramatic or upset at the table because something wasn't right or correct. <laughs> Yeah. It happens. And they lose their mind, right? They do, you know, and I think it's those guests that, you know, kind of provide good, you know, laughs after the end of the night, or maybe they're the reason for needing to have that end of drink cocktail or end of chip cocktail. <laughs> right. To just decompress. Yeah. But yeah, you see some crazy stuff. I you know. saw some crazy stuff for sure. I know. Anytime you're serving alcohol past midnight, yeah, you're going to see some stuff. I bet. I bet. That's so funny. So, okay. Anything, anything you want to share with me about this subject or anything else you want to get on out there into the world? Gosh, you know, um, I think that's it. You know, thanks for inviting me to come do this. It was fun to talk about the restaurant business. I feel like it was a different life. For me, um, it was a long time ago, and uh, it's always fun talking about it. What would you say to somebody if you had a friend come, <clears throat> come to you and, and say that they wanted to start a restaurant? I have one right now whose uh, son is trying to start a restaurant. Um, it, I would say, I would say, if you're passionate about it, I would say go for it. I think there is always an opportunity to do it better than your competition. Um, you need to live in that restaurant for a, for a while and know that if it doesn't work, it may have nothing to do with you. Um, you know, it, there's so many out, there's such an element of luck when it comes to restaurants, knowing, not knowing what's going to hit, what's going to resonate with people, what's going to make them feel a certain way. I mean, if it was that easy to do, you wouldn't see companies like, you know, I mean, you wouldn't see companies out there like Cheesecake Factory going around and buying other startup concepts. They would create them themselves because that would be a lot less expensive. But it's not that easy. It's not. I mean, you've got some of the best restaurateurs in the world out there or biggest restaurant companies in the world that go around buying concepts for acquisition. If they all have, they all have R&D departments. They all could go out and you know open up a restaurant concept and see if it would be successful. But... Not many of them were able to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I I like what you said, which is if you have the passion for it, it's like you have got to love cooking. Like you've got to love being in a restaurant because otherwise, it'll never. Your passion will never. When when all when everything else fails, if you don't have the passion to keep you there. It will never work. And I think that's true in any business, but specifically in a restaurant, you got to love to cook. 
Dan, thank you. I hope you know you're you're one of my favorite people. I just love talking to you. I love going to restaurants with you. I love eating your food. You're you're an awesome person, an awesome host, an awesome friend, an awesome real estate agent. <laughs> we talked about restaurants and food, and you're actually one of the best luxury real estate agents in Scottsdale in Arizona. Anyway, thank you for your time. Have Thank a great you. rest of your weekend. You too.